This is our final week in Peter's second letter. So if you want to turn to your Bibles, if you would, we're in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. As I was thinking about kind of an opening illustration, I was going to present a portion of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, which is basically a play about two men waiting for God and not knowing what to do for the God who never shows up. But I decided to go for something a little less highbrow, the Princess Bride. So Princess Bride, you've probably seen it. If you haven't, you should. Movie from 1987. And in this movie, Princess Buttercup is kidnapped by Vicini, is the mastermind, and he has a crew of henchmen that help him with getting Princess Buttercup away and carrying out the plan. Well, you might know that Vicini has this word that he repeats over and over again. Inconceivable. It's inconceivable that he and his henchmen could be followed after kidnapping Princess Buttercup. It's inconceivable that the man in black was following them, that the man in black is climbing the cliffs of insanity, and that he didn't fall to his death when Vicini cut the rope. Inconceivable. To which Inigo Montoya responds, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Well, the man in black ends up being a savior figure to Princess Buttercup. As you know, in the book of 2 Peter, Peter's dealing with the reality that even his readers, to a certain extent, are understanding as inconceivable. And that's the return of their savior, Jesus Christ. Throughout chapter 3, he's addressed the reality to his beloved that they should know that there will be scoffers. Scoffers that would say, yeah, it's inconceivable that Jesus would return. These scoffers, they're going to come following their own sinful desires, basically saying, we like our sin. And so we're just going to reasonably ignore the reality that Jesus could be coming back and there could be a judgment. We're getting away with it. We're fine with it. These scoffers will scoff, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Everything has always just happened in the same pattern of reality. How could there be such a change? But Peter says they are willfully ignorant of the day of judgment and their destruction that will come with it. So Peter tells them they need to know this and also know the Lord hasn't returned yet because he doesn't keep time like us. He's eternal. He's also patient toward us that all those who would repent would come to repentance. And he's also going to surprise us when he returns, like a thief. Know this, beloved. And then last week we talked about, as we wait, who should we be? We should be waiting with awareness of what will pass away and what will stay. Waiting with a hastening heart for the return of Jesus. 
And finally, we should be waiting for our home, the new heavens and the new earth. To which Peter's writers or readers and we could say, we do long for Jesus to return. But until he does, what should we do? And Peter says, beloved, as we wait for Jesus to return, here's what you will do. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, inspired by your Holy Spirit, delivered by the prophets and the apostles for us to believe, to instruct us in the gospel, to form us as a people more and more into the image of Christ. Would you do that even this morning? For your glory. Amen. Hope you've found 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18 by now. The question for this morning specifically is this. What will hearts that long to see Jesus do until they see him? Here's our answer. Glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What will hearts that long to see Jesus do until they see him? Glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I will point you to the very last verse, the second half of the last verse, to help you see where this comes from. That last sentence, which has been our benediction during this series, to him, to Jesus, be the glory both now into the day of eternity. See, what we do now, the lives that we are living now, they are in that spectrum between now and the day of eternity. So what we do has to keep in mind that we are in that spectrum. We are in that place similar to Peter and identical to his readers. Between now and then. So we keep the end in mind, and the end is the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But see, here's the thing, church people. Glory is a slippery word for us. We were watching an Indiana Jones movie the other night, and the reason that Indiana go says that he's going to do what he's going to do is fortune and glory. Fortune we get, and in the sense of Indiana Jones, we can assume glory means fame. That's a good working definition. Lowenida gives this definition, to speak of something as being unusually fine and deserving honor. So if we're talking about the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we're saying he is someone who is unusually fine and deserving of honor. Another way we could think of it is this, showing off Jesus. Showing off Jesus. So what will hearts that long to see Jesus do until they see him? They will glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
And the wording that we're going to use throughout the sermon today is show off our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, while we wait. And here's the thing. As we show him off, as we do that, he then gets the fame. He is the one glorified. He is the one that can become more conceivable. I'm going to take you through four things that Peter shows us here for how we show off Jesus. First, we show off our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by pursuing purity and peace. Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Notice that Peter says, since you are waiting for these, what are these? Well, it's what he's been talking about so far. The day of the Lord, a.k.a. Jesus' return. The dissolving of the heavens and the earth. The presentation of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We didn't talk about that a whole lot last week. But how can we anticipate that new heavens and new earth? Well, Christ, our righteousness, dwells there. And all who dwell there with him will also experience united with him righteousness you might say okay so what are, you, what are we talking about when we're talking about righteousness rightness in the sight of God we have no idea what that actually feels like we know that by the death of Christ all those who have trusted in him have received his righteousness have been made righteous that's what's called justification. God looks at Christians and says, they are righteous because my righteous son died for them. His record of righteousness, of rightness, became theirs. However, when it comes to the day today, we are still in our flesh, even as we are righteous. So to know a day, to know an hour, perhaps even to know a minute when we are actually experiencing dwelling in righteousness is not something we can actually fully comprehend. It's like there, but we just can't quite grasp it because it's not there for us yet. It's still coming. So what Peter is saying here is since all these, sorry, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. See, if we are waiting for that full experience of rightness, of the one who has always been full of rightness, Jesus, then we ought also to be diligent to strive to be doing what is right, even though we know the struggle is real. Our lives here and now should agree with such a waiting. 
And this is actually exactly what Peter commands them to do. He says, be diligent to be found by him. Be diligent there. The verb means to strive to be found, to be exposed. That verse is actually the same as he talks about up in verse 10 when he talks about all the works done in the earth will be exposed. There was kind of like a negative thing, kind of like everything's just going to be made naked in terms of what is done. And here, Peter is saying, understand, everything in life will be exposed. Therefore, we should long for that day, for when it's exposed, to be without spot or blemish. Peter uses that same language back in 1 Peter. He wrote this. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Listen, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What Peter is urging his church to do is to remember the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Who, though he had no sin, became sin for them, for us. Though he had no spot or blemish, he said, I'm going to be the lamb that will be slain so that they can then be rightness people. They can then be themselves without spot or blemish. So Peter is saying, when the heavens disappear and the earth and its inhabitants are stripped bare before the throne of God, Strive to make sure that your lives are pure and that you have nothing to hide on that day. See, if we're honest with ourselves, we could be more concerned about the spotlessness of our homes, of our shirts, of our kicks, more concerned about the spotlessness of our record at work, the spotlessness of our grade point average than we are of our lives. Facets of spotlessness that we can measure, yet not taking seriously living in agreement with the lamb who was slain. We take care of those other stains real quick if we can, but we may let the comfortable, persistent crutch of sin remain. But Jesus, church, has made us spotless. So notice what Peter says to finish this verse. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Because here's the thing. When we see the spotfulness of our lives, 
the reality that we can't seem to cleanse off our own blemishes. We can't stop doing that, it feels like, or we can't stop thinking way, that way, it seems like. Then we are always still trying to make ourselves clean. But Peter says, be diligent in those things and also be at peace. Live in agreement with who you are in Christ. So if the Lamb of God, who is spotless and blameless, has died to make us spotless and blameless, who do you think we should go to when we're not experiencing spotlessness and blamelessness? The very one who came to make us spotless and blameless. Christ came to make us clean. He came to make us rightness. And we truly can be at peace. Can the struggle be real? Of course. It will continue until we see Christ. But we can be at peace knowing I am forgiven and knowing who I can boldly come to in my time of need. He is the one who has done it all and continues to do it all. And so we run to the spotless and the blameless one. Such lives of pursuing purity and peace show off our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that we wait for that day of eternity when our purity and peace, our rightness, will be unending. Second, we show off our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by seeking salvation. Look at 15a. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Remember, the Lord does not keep time like us. He is patient toward us. So Peter is saying, count, consider the patience, the reality that he hasn't come back yet, yet as salvation. What is he meaning by that? Well, two ways, it seems. Number one, this salvation, this saving, is a saving of our souls from the coming judgment of God's just punishment for sin. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness to be, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God desires that all of those who will reach repentance will reach repentance, and they will. So this salvation that we should count as patience is that God is still saving About a week ago, the Ocean Gate submarine was launched last Sunday. And I'm sure almost all of us followed that news, the updates, pretty closely. If you don't know, it had five people. It was a private enterprise going down to visit the Titanic, about two miles below the surface of the ocean. There were five passengers inside, and they lost contact last Sunday. 
there was an active desire around the world that the five passengers would be found alive and saved from the ocean depths. But they had limited oxygen. It would probably only last them until about Thursday. The only way that this crew of five could have survived at all, going down two miles below the ocean's surface, was that they had a titanium shell that could protect them from the pressure of the ocean depths. After a Herculean effort to find them, on Friday, they found wreckage of a massive implosion. The pressure of the ocean had overcome that vessel and overcome their lives. Please hear this. As impossible as it is for the human body to survive exposure at two miles below the ocean's surface, it is just as impossible for the human to survive the judgment of God against sin. Has it come yet? No, it hasn't, not in its fullness. It will come on that day. Between now and then are those days of oxygen. Between now and then are God's days of patience. Calling, turn away from the things that don't satisfy, Isaiah 55, and come to me. I offer you all that you need. I'm the only one who can save you. Yet just as sure as the reality of God's judgment is that his promises are sure. His promise that all who are his will repent. They will turn from their own ways. They will turn to him. And that he is patiently waiting for all of those souls to be saved from his punishment. Furthermore, he himself has provided the way to be saved. Jesus. Who has already taken on the full punishment of God. The full pressure of his wrath. That all who come to him no longer have to fear bearing the flood of that pressure. The implosion of their lives. For themselves. Because Jesus himself already has. So this salvation that Peter is talking about is a salvation of the soul that people can be saved from the wrath of God and into his presence. But second of all, it's also that our souls will be saved from the coming judgment that the world will experience. Imagine Noah, who Peter often talks about, Imagine Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three daughters. Imagine, as Jesus mentions in the Gospels, that people were marrying and being given in marriage before the flood rains came. Obviously, Noah, his sons and his wives, their wives, they were experiencing marriage too. Marriage is not what Jesus is dissing. Marriage is what Jesus is saying. It's an example of the ways that people just put down their roots here. 
without having their eyes cast to the return. And so Noah's sons got married. But they probably got married as Moses was building the ark. Definitely, it seems, sorry, maybe I shouldn't use the word definitely. It seems that he was also preaching and imploring people to come in, perhaps even as they were getting married. Why, why do I go here with this? Because here's the reality. Noah and his family were saved from judgment, yet they still saw judgment happen. All those who are in Christ will be saved from judgment. But as Peter says in his first letter in chapter 1, there is a glorious salvation still to come where we will experience everything that is not of salvation has been done away with. And now I am experiencing the fullness of rightness with him. Such lives of patiently seeking salvation in Christ rather than in the resources of the world shows off our Savior. Number three, we show off our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by holding tightly to Scripture. 15b. It's an interesting section here. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him. So Peter starts to talk about Paul. As he does, Paul does, in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. These are some things, and there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. We show off our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by holding tightly to the scripture. This seems to be a digression in Peter's main argument about the return of Christ. But he's actually here making a critical point. He's saying that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writings of the Apostle Paul are also Scripture. What's going on here? When we read the word Scripture here, Peter's referring to the Old Testament writings, the sacred writings of the Jewish faith. Grathe was the Greek word for those sacred writings that Peter uses here, the word of God to his people. But here... Peter creates a line of continuity between the Old Testament, Scripture, and what is now happening through Paul. He equates the writings of Paul with that of the Old Testament, meaning that Paul is just as much of an authority as Moses, or as Isaiah, or as Ezekiel, or as Daniel. By making such a statement of authenticity and authority, Peter is also saying that his own letters are scripture as well. Because he's making a claim about Paul's scriptures as an apostle himself. As apostles, Peter might say, Paul and I also write under the Holy Spirit and thus 
with the authority of the Old Testament prophets. You might be thinking, what does that mean for me? Good question. Flip back to 1 Peter 2. I'm sorry, 1. I would like you to consider this. How tightly do you hold to this? Is this where you find life? Is this where you find truth? Is this where you find authority? Is this where you find good news? Is this where you find God speaking? Verse 16 of chapter 1, Peter says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is saying, there was this time when I was up on the holy mountain with Jesus and with James and with John and with Elijah and Moses. The transfiguration is what we call it. And Jesus was glorified in their presence and God's voice was heard saying, this is my beloved son, meaning Jesus, with whom I am well pleased. Peter goes on, verse 19, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. We're not making this stuff up. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of inspiration. This is the doctrine that says, this came to us through the pens of people who the Holy Spirit inspired. This is truly God's word to his people. And as Joey preached about that week, that Sunday in this chapter, he was talking about the witness of the prophets and the witness of the apostles. But did you catch here the greatest witness? The greatest witness was God himself. Saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What Peter is helping them understand here is that just decades, just decades after Jesus died, rose, and ascended, there is scripture coming forth. The word of God is coming through the apostles to his people, to his beloved. And beloved, I'm writing scripture, and Paul has written scripture. Think of us, think of what we've written at the same level as Moses and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and David, and all the authors that wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
in the Old Testament. See, this is critical for Peter because remember what he's doing. He is trying to refute false teachers who say, what about the day of his coming? Ah, everything's just continued the way that it always has and it always will. The thing is, look in Isaiah 53, 54. 54, I think it's exactly. The day of the Lord, this reality is clear. So for these false teachers to say, ah, he's not coming back, is for them to not only turn against Peter and Paul, but to turn against Isaiah. He's encouraging his people, hold tightly to Scripture. Hold tightly to the Word of God being where you find truth and life. Hold tight even when it doesn't make sense because here's what he acknowledges. There's some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant, the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, I'm telling you now, so you know it beforehand, take care, be careful, be careful that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Here's the thing. When you're at work and you start talking about the scriptures, if you do, if those conversations come up, or if you're talking with a family member who, oh, I used to go to church, but I don't anymore, oftentimes they will go to like obscure questions within the Bible and try to make that their reason for not believing it. They'll try to make that the thing. That's the fly in the ointment. That's what makes the whole thing untrue just because I can't understand it. There's a significant principle here that I pulled from the Net Bible. The primary proof texts used for faith and practice ought to be the clear passages that are undisputed in their meaning, of which they are abundant. Heresy today, that dispute that your co-worker tries to throw at you to trip you up, is still largely built on obscure texts. So people find excuses for a certain life choice or a certain lifestyle, or they find uh, I, I, I just can't trust it anymore because of this verse. Yeah, but what about this book? What about the God that delivered this, who spoke and preserved it through millennia for his people? Here's the point that Peter's making. These false teachers, they get down into the minutia and try to find ways to kind of pick it apart. Here's what they need to understand and what you need to understand and what we need to understand. What is not hard or obscure is that Jesus will return. Period. You can find little ways to justify or to proof text 
your own understandings, your own disbelief. But listen, skeptic, listen, scoffer, listen, Christian. Allow the fullness of God's word unfolded to us through the life, death, resurrection of Christ and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit make us confident in him. He loves us that much that we can be certain. Last point. We show off our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by growing in who we are knowing. Growing in who we are knowing. Verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you remember way back 10 weeks ago when we started the the letter back in chapter 1. Verse 2 says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That word for knowledge is epignosis. It means like rich relational knowledge. Like you could be best friends with God. You're in his inner circle, Peter is saying. Just before that, he says, You've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. To churches who might be feeling down and low, Peter's saying, brothers and sisters, your faith is where my faith is. I'm an apostle, but there's no rank here. Christ in his righteousness has saved you like he saved me. We're both in the inner circle. This epignosis, knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. But the knowledge that we see here in verse 18 is not epignosis, it's just gnosis. It's more of a content. What do you believe or what do you know? So, but grow in the grace and the what do you know of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we might think, that's kind of an impersonal way to inspire the church to treasure Christ. What he's saying is this. He's urging his beloved to grow in the content of what they know of Jesus Christ. Because you can't claim that close, rich relationship if you're believing in a false Christ. You need the content of the scripture to inform your belief if you were to actually know Jesus. So you can't just, and I don't mean you necessarily, but a person can't just say, yeah, me and Jesus are cool, yet have an unbiblical view of Christ the Savior. It's impossible. What is the particular content that Peter is defending and urging here? We've been talking about it for a few weeks on end. The content that Jesus will return. You know, sometimes we talk about discipleship. What does it look like to be a disciple? What does it look like to follow Jesus? The Greek word for disciple is Matthäus. And that word means learner. So if we debate about or wonder how to be a disciple, Jesus basically says just this, learn me. Learn me. 
when you understand more of who I am, you get more of the content of who I am, that content will inspire you. It will make you love me more and more. You'll understand the depth of my love for you, and in a reciprocal way, you'll love me more. So Peter is saying, as a disciple of Christ, I have had to learn that he's returning. And I want to tell you, my beloved, other disciples, make sure you learn this. Jesus is coming back. Bank on it. Bank on it. And he's saying, the more you know, the more you grow. Not in a puffed up sort of way, like I've got so much knowledge, but in a I want to learn Christ more sort of way. It's an eternal process of growth. It won't stop when we see Jesus. The growth will continue because we'll get to, for eternity, experience God in his fullness, in his depths, for the rest of our existence. So if we're looking at an eternal process of growth, what should we give ourselves to? Well, Peter would say, lives of purity and peace. Lives that agree with the eternal reality that you long for. One way that we see that is in baptism. When someone who has trusted Christ takes the public step of saying, I desire to publicly proclaim the reality of what God has done in me. That I desire a life of purity and peace in Christ. What else lasts for eternity? The church. The people that Christ saves, he keeps for eternity. And by God's grace, we get to experience that in a local way. It's not just like a big group, big capital C type thing. He gives us the grace of being in a local body. So we press into that body through communion, through remembering that we've been united with Christ through his death and his resurrection. We press into that through membership, understanding that God has brought me to a place. He's saved me. And he's not just saved me to do kind of my Lone Ranger Christian existence. He's saved me into a people. And I want to make a covenant with them as they make a covenant with me that we together can wait until that day. And what's the third thing that lasts for eternity? God's word. The gospel. That Christ's life, death, and resurrection reverberates throughout all of history. And that God is proclaiming that good news of his glory throughout the world. Within the last month, I've received three letters. The first one is from a town in Michigan addressed to pastor. It has 
a few tracks in it. Jesus is returning soon. Heaven, your future home. Hell, what does the Bible teach? And then a short handwritten known, a handwritten note for man of God. And the author of this, I don't, I don't know who sent it, talks about things that are happening in our world and interprets them as saying the end times are coming. He finishes by saying the time is at hand. That was on May 30th. A few days before that, I got a letter from a man serving time in prison in California addressed to the head servant of Judge Jesus at 1401 West Hollywood. This was handwritten in pencil. One, two, oh, backside. Three, also backside. Four pages. The purpose? To remind whoever read it that Jesus is coming back. Signed, with love, Michael. To the home of a friend, the road is never long. He also took some time to like look at the state of the world and try to make some connections with when Jesus would be coming back. The third one I received June 8th from an author here in Chicago, actually. This one has some copies. One copy was actually sent to Armitage. He lists all the churches in Chicago that these were sent to. Also, Moody gets a copy. Paul got that copy. Are you going to publish it, Paul? Here's the thing. This one takes some devotional thoughts from Today in the Word. He highlights some different things. Basically, he's talking about the fact that we won't be taken back. Christians won't be taken up in the rapture until the tribulation is finished. He has some other copies here pointing out the, the three horns and the little horn in the United States. Some other things from copies of the Bible, underlined and highlighted. You know, you could look at those things and be like, wow. I don't, I don't know about all their presumptions about when things are going to happen, how things are going to happen, things like that. When Lovey gave them to me, we, I, I showed her first, and we had some... We just kind of like smiled, chuckled. Then as I thought more about them, I said this to say to you, Christ's return matters to these men. They might be off base because we don't know when Christ is going to return. And if we could try to figure it out by the different ways that they used, I don't think Christ would have been correct in saying that we would not know when, he came, when he's coming back. But regardless of those steps, the return of Christ matters to them so much that they would take time to write to a pastor 
to tell his church, Christ is coming back. Peter took the time to write a letter to his churches about something that felt like it was increasingly inconceivable, but it mattered because Christ is coming back. Let all those who are in Christ be found in him that day. Let's pray. Lord, we long for that day. Keep us awake. Help us to be doing the things that you want us to do as we wait. May our lives, may our church, may our witness show you off, Lord Jesus. That all those who you are calling to yourself might even see you or hear of you from us. God, that you would be glorified, that you would be known for your fame alone, Jesus.